I'm your host, the one, the only, Willie Jackson. All right. Dude, that was pretty sick. All right, so I got a really great show for you guys. Um, I was hearing a lot of stuff about this Ukraine-Russia thing, and I don't know what it is. Uh, something makes me a little suspicious when I start hearing stuff about, you know, certain sides of the government talking about Russia and what's going on with them. So I did a, a little bit of research on this, and what I came up with was that basically Putin was using a certain section of Ukraine as leverage towards the rest of the world, towards uh, the EU and everything like that. And, you know, basically France and Germany, they don't even care. They're just like, whatever. And so it's kind of weird that the U.S. is kind of stepping over all these people and going, all right, we're going to take care of it or whatever. We don't need a dictator coming in. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I I don't understand why all these European Union leaders are not really caring about it too much. But here's the U.S. like trying to do what we always do. And, you know, we're not going to worry about a whole bunch of stuff that's going on here in our home, in our own country. I mean, here we are giving... Uh, safe smoking kits out to inner city in the way of racial diversity but then we got to go run over there and try to stop uh, Russia from taking which the whole thing is really complex because it was actually their own territory in a lot of these areas um, you know maybe we could get like a certain voting system over there and then we could just have the people vote, and then we could just have that voting system just tell them whatever, whoever the winner is, and it's going to be whatever Russia wants. But this whole entire place over there is, um, I, I think they were calling it the Donex province. I, I can't remember the exact name, but they're calling it a certain province, and it's mostly Russian-speaking people, it's mostly Russian culture, and... It's in Ukraine, and, and it's really highly contested. Um, you know, all Russia wants is Russia wants that area to be able to govern themselves without uh, being under Ukrainian rule. Um, you know, Ukraine is, uh, they're trying to join, like, the European Union. They're trying to be, like, more um, mainstream. They're trying to be like, in with the in crowd or whatever, and Russia doesn't like that, and then even a lot of their people don't like, they don't want to go to the European Union, so there's a lot of, it's kind of like in the middle, and to me, in my opinion, I think we need to stay out of it. That's what I would have done. Um, you know, obviously, um, Putin is just kind of trying to bait us in to this conflict and try to get us involved in it, and and it looks like he's going to win and if if Putin ends up winning then we're all going to be paying way more for our energy prices and we might have to put off those uh electric car mandates for a few more years or something but I don't know I hope I put together a good episode for you guys and uh like I say I think this is a lot of fun for me and uh I didn't know any of this 
not until about probably 20 minutes ago when I actually recorded it and listened to it. And uh, it's pretty interesting. I think you guys will enjoy. So you know Vladimir Putin, you think he's a killer? Mm-hmm, I do. So what price must he pay? The price he's gonna pay, well, you'll see shortly. Die! Let's bring in the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. Mr. President, thank you so much for joining uh, Fox and Friends Weekend. Well, thank you. It's an honor. And we have a lot of problems in this country, but it's an honor to be with you. Well, we're grateful to have you, sir. Uh, well, let's start with, with the headline we've had all morning long. Uh, you know, what's happening in Russia, what's happening in Ukraine. The White House right now is saying an attack could happen at any time. On your assessment, where are we and, and how did we get here? Well, first of all, it's shocking because this should have never happened. It should have never happened. It would not have happened. And uh, how we got here is uh, when they watched Afghanistan and they watched the most incompetent withdrawal in the history of probably any army, let alone just us. Uh, they saw that. And uh, President Xi and President Putin, watch what happens with China versus mm -hmm. but, uh, with Taiwan. But uh, they watched that and they said... Uh, What's going on? They don't know what they're doing. And all of a sudden, I think they got a lot more, more ambitious. I think Putin really wanted to negotiate for a period of time. I think when he watched Afghanistan, when he watched that unbelievably bad withdrawal, incompetent, where they took the military out first, where they left $85 billion worth of equipment behind for the Taliban to have and to sell and to use. And, uh, of course, the death, the death that happened. When they watched all of that, I think they got emboldened. President Trump, Joe Biden is scheduled to be on a call today with Vladimir Putin. What do you think he can say? What should he say? If you were in office today, what would you say to Vladimir Putin? 
Well, I, I wouldn't be in this position because we're in a very bad position right now. And it would have, as I said, it would never have happened. I know him very well, got along with him very well. I stopped his pipeline. I sanctioned them more than anybody ever sanctioned them. Nobody was ever tougher in Russia, but I got along with Putin very well. We respected each other. Uh, I think you have a whole different ballgame right now. This is just an exercise. He's not going to tell him anything, and I don't think Putin's at this point going to be listening. It's going to be very interesting to see what he does in terms of the uh, the depth. What he, Will he take a small piece? Uh, when Biden originally said uh, he's going in, everybody was like, did he just say that? Nobody could believe it, but he said it. And it was almost like a card. Uh, Ukraine went crazy when he when he saw that, when they heard that, the president. But uh, now the phone call, I, I think, is perfunctory. I don't think much is going to come out of it. Yes, sir. Uh, Republicans have introduced a bill that would block aid to Ukraine uh, until our southern border is secure. The thinking is, why would we be worried about a border in Europe when there is a disaster happening right here at home? Do you think that those two issues should be linked? Well, I certainly understand how people feel. We had the strongest border we've ever had, our southern border. We were three weeks away from finishing the wall. After going through two and a half years of lawsuits with the Democrats and winning them all, we were two and a half, three weeks away from, think of it, finishing the wall, which is largely, frankly, finished anyway. It's a tremendous help. We had the best numbers in the history of our country on the southern border. Very little was coming in. Very few people were coming in other than coming in legally. We had the lowest drug numbers, the best drug numbers in the last 32 years, and they were getting much better rapidly. And all of a sudden, uh, this guy takes over, and the border is opened, and we have millions of people. I think it's 10 million. They say 3 million. But uh, people coming in, countries all over the world are releasing their prisoners into our country. We're like a dumping ground. So I can certainly understand how people feel when they say, uh, you know, let's try and tie one to the other. You know, we fight for other people's borders, but we don't fight for our own border. We had the strongest, the most secure border we've ever had at the South. And uh, and Mexico was uh, was great to me. They uh, helped us. They gave us 28,000 soldiers free of charge, because otherwise we would have, as you know, tariffed all of their cars and things coming in. And we got along great with Mexico. We had the Mexico stay in Mexico policy. Now it's called stay in the United States. Whoever you are, just come on in. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's a very terrible thing and I, I must tell you i do understand how they feel when we're fighting for other countries but we're not fighting for our own mm. yeah mr president not only are we fighting for our own we're facilitating that transportation with secret flights in the middle of the night things uh, you you've heard 100,000 troops stand ready on ukraine's border with russia thousands more reservists have been called up to active duty diplomatic talks with the u.s and nato have broken down is russia really about to invade ukraine and what will happen if it does? In 2014, despite publicly denying it, Russia invaded and seized Crimea, formally recognized as Ukrainian territory by the international community. Per Russia's narrative, the Crimean conflict was a domestically inspired revolutionary movement by ethnic Russians seeking to rejoin Russia. However, it very quickly became clear that this was a lie, as Russian special forces, who earned the moniker Little Green Men for their featureless uniforms, were confirmed to be working with Crimean rebels. Then, deep dives into Russian social media produced even more damning evidence of regular Russian soldiers operating inside of Ukrainian territory itself. 
Russia never formally admitted to utilizing both unconventional and conventional military forces in Crimea to fight off Ukrainian forces, and in the end Crimea declared itself independent and was quickly absorbed by Russia. Since then, fighting against rebel forces has continued across disputed Ukrainian territory, and Russia has continued to support those rebel forces, albeit in a slightly less obvious way. Now the fear of a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine seems more real than ever, as 100,000 Russian soldiers mass on the border with the breakaway former Soviet Republic. But why would Russia risk angering the world with an invasion of a bordering nation? Could it really do it, and what would the world's response be if it did? Since the end of the Cold War, Russia has largely been in retreat from its former Soviet glory. It saw massive losses of territory and subsequent economic outflow from the independence of numerous former Soviet republics. As the nation struggled through tumultuous post-Soviet Union years, many of these newly independent nations took the opportunity to ensure their own survival and independence by drawing closer ties with the West. Russia made it very clear that it did not want NATO to expand further east than Germany, and yet one by one, new Eastern European states joined NATO's ranks, pushing NATO forces closer and closer to Russian territory. Eventually, NATO would stand on Russia's northern border, with NATO forces within 500 miles of Moscow itself. For a nation with as difficult a history as Russia, this was the sum of all fears, and a strategic disaster. Rarely ever the invader, Russia itself has been repeatedly invaded throughout its history, and each time the human and economic toll was profound. Many of these invasions threatened the very independence of the nation itself, such as Germany's near defeat of the Red Army in World War II, and Napoleon's invasion during the Napoleonic Wars. These invasions are so threatening because Russia sits at the eastern edge of the European plain, a large swath of relatively flat land that's very difficult to defend. With modern, fast-moving military formations, this strategic deficiency only increased, and after World War II, the Soviet Union became obsessed with pushing any potential future aggressor as far west as possible. This led the Soviet Union to extend its sphere of influence as far west as Germany, creating the infamous Soviet bloc as a buffer zone to any future invasion. With the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, Russia's influence receded practically back to its own borders and all the strategic gains of the last 50 years evaporated overnight. Today, more Eastern European nations have chosen to draw closer to the US and its European allies than to Russia, mostly due to Russia's authoritarian system of government and fears of becoming puppet states once more. As the new millennium dawned, Ukraine began to seek a pathway for membership in NATO, and Russia warned that this would be tantamount to a declaration of war between itself and NATO. Not willing to antagonize Russia, NATO postponed the Ukrainian question indefinitely, despite building cooperative ties with the nation. In 2014, Ukraine's worst fears were realized, and now its continued independence is in question by the 100,000-strong Russian forces massing on the border. If Russia invaded, though, how would Ukraine fare without Western aid? Ukraine has a population roughly a third of the size of Russia, and its military is ranked at the number 22 spot according to GlobalFirepower.com which ranks world military powers according to the strength of their militaries, their economies, and demographics. Russia, despite slowly slipping out of it, still retains the number two spot as the world's second strongest military power, and its overmatch with Ukraine is significant. Russia's military numbers at 850,000 active personnel versus Ukraine's 200,000 strong military, a mismatch of 650,000 in Russia's favor. Due to the ever-growing threat of all-out war with Russia, both Ukraine and Russia have the same number of available reservists, 250,000, as Ukraine has dramatically increased readiness and training of reservist units. Since 2014, it's created dozens of additional reserve units, which can be quickly activated to combat Russian troops. In the air, Russia absolutely dwarfs Ukraine, with the second-best air force in the world, numbering 4,173 strong. Ukraine, on the other hand, only has 318 aircraft available 
with only 69 of those being fighter aircraft versus a fleet of 772 Russian fighters. Russia also enjoys a massive advantage in attack aircraft with 739 dedicated attack platforms versus Ukraine's 29. With the world's second largest air mobility fleet, Russia can call upon 445 aircraft to rapidly move troops into combat areas or launch airborne invasions deep into Ukrainian territory. By comparison, Ukraine's tiny air mobility fleet of 32 would struggle to move significant personnel or supplies in theater. Russia's attack helicopter fleet also vastly outnumbers Ukraine's own, with 544 versus 34. On land, Russia claims tank corps of 12,000 strong, but it's widely accepted that only a few thousand of those vehicles, likely around 6,000, are capable of immediate combat operations. The rest are Cold War-era leftovers, which are in a mothball storage and would require weeks to reactivate and deploy. Ukraine, on the other hand, has a tank force of 2,596, giving Russia a probable 2-1 advantage over Ukraine. Russia also maintains a sizable advantage in number of armored vehicles used to support combat operations with 30,122 versus Ukraine's 12,303. So, what story do these numbers tell about a possible Russian invasion? Firstly, while the numbers advantage is decidedly on the Russian side, Ukraine wouldn't actually be facing the full force of the Russian military, even in a worst-case scenario. That's because a significant number of those troops are required for security operations elsewhere. Russia must still maintain a strong defensive posture along its northern border with NATO and along its far eastern flank on the Pacific in order to deter a possible American incursion. Realistically, only about 50% of its western and southern military districts would be freed up for combat operations in Ukraine, with some reinforcements from the rest of Russia's three other military districts. A probable invasion of Ukraine would involve between 150,000 to 200,000 troops bringing the number parity much more in line as Ukraine would be free to use most of its forces to combat the Russian invasion. With Belarus still being a strong Russian ally, though, a significant number of Ukrainian forces must be left in reserve in case of an unexpected northern incursion, so even Ukraine can't commit its entire force to the fight. Russian reinforcements would also need to make a lengthy trip from training camps or other military districts to Ukraine, while Ukraine would be drawing up reservists just miles from the fighting. In a Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russia would not enjoy a vast number superiority that the raw data shows, even if, as Russia believes, portions of Ukrainian populations would join them in a bid to rejoin Russia. A dubious proposition, indeed. In the air, even only utilizing 30-40% to 40 of its air forces, Russia would still dominate the skies. Ukraine operates largely Cold War-era aircraft, which are being kept operational by a domestic arms industry, while Russia's inventory is largely modern, though not entirely so. Russia's overmatch in the skies would allow it to establish complete air superiority, and its extensive ground-based air defense batteries would allow it to threaten over half of Ukraine from the ground without even moving air defense units inside Ukraine's borders. Thus, Ukraine would likely opt to simply move its aircraft west and not even bother dedicating them to fight, opting instead for ground-based air defense. On the ground, Russia's tank forces vastly outnumber Ukraine's, but at least some of Ukraine's tanks are actually more capable than Russia's. In the second half of the 2010s, as war with Russia seemed ever more likely, Ukraine began a program of upgrading its Cold War-era T-64s, which are on the whole more sophisticated than Russia's vast fleet of T-72s. Domestic upgrades have made the Ukrainian T-64 BM Bulat deadlier than Russia's own T-72. But even with two factories dedicated to the task of upgrading Ukraine's tanks, it still only has about 300 upgraded T-64s in its inventory. Sadly, with complete domination of the skies, this is likely to matter little as Russian air power systematically seeks out and destroys Ukrainian armor. Russia's sizable numerical advantage is diminished significantly in an invasion of Ukraine due to its defense commitments elsewhere, but it still allows Russia to rotate combat troops out of theater with fresh forces 
and replenish combat losses of aircraft and vehicles at a rate that Ukraine simply can't match. Further, while the Russian Air Force also has defense commitments elsewhere, the nation would be able to dedicate a large number of strike aircraft to the initial days of the war, launching a devastating blitzkrieg of overwhelming force against Ukrainian troops, supply depots, and command and control nodes. Russia also enjoys very robust electronic warfare capabilities, having made much greater investments into this area of warfighting than most other nations in a bid to defeat American smart weapons and erode its technological advantage. Russian electronic warfare could seriously degrade Ukrainian defensive radar, interrupt or fully jam Ukrainian communications, and even aid in the spread of disinformation and propaganda. This has already been seen in combat along Ukraine's eastern front as Russian EW units jammed Ukrainian communications and even spoofed text messages to soldiers on the front lines with demoralizing or confusing orders. For the most part, Ukraine has no such capability. However, while the numbers heavily favor Russia, a conquest of Ukraine would by no means be easy for them. For starters, Ukraine enjoys home field advantage, and after eight years of hostilities with Russia, pro-independent sentiments are strong amongst the Ukrainian population. Dreams of being welcomed as liberators by the locals and even having entire guerrilla movements spring up to aid invading Russian forces are almost certainly a Russian fantasy at this point. The Ukrainian people also have some faith that the West would not simply abandon them to Russian aggression, given that Ukraine's annexation back into the Russian fold would be a strategic disaster for NATO. This would help bolster morale in a brutal and very bloody invasion. Ukrainian military forces have also proven themselves to be far more capable than Russia believed in 2014. When the process of annexing Crimea began, the Kremlin believed that Ukrainian forces would quickly crumble and be incapable of long-term significant resistance to rebellion movements sweeping across the country's eastern border with Russia. It was believed that Ukraine would quickly fall piece by piece to pro-Russian independence movements, financed of course with weapons and supplies by Russia itself. Yet the Ukrainian armed forces did not collapse as expected, and while they were unable to weather the onslaught of battle against line Russian forces disguised as rebels in Crimea, they had largely been able to contain the separatists and Ukraine remains united. Ukrainian military units have proven surprisingly resilient and capable even under assault by modern and more capable Russian weapon systems, prompting the United States to send numerous observers to gather intelligence on Russian capabilities. The world has also not stood idly by as Ukraine was covertly invaded by Russian forces and in anticipation of a full-scale invasion has taken steps to ensure the nation is able to defend itself. The United States alone has provided a whopping $2.5 billion in military aid to Ukraine with an additional $200 million given in December of 2021. The aid has largely taken the form of anti-tank missiles, anti-air missiles, counter-artillery radar systems, patrol boats, small arms, and millions of rounds of ammunition. To date, the United States is responsible for 90% of all aid given to Ukraine. The specific type of aid given speaks to the US's thoughts on a Russian invasion. The vast amount of deadly Javelin anti-tank missiles provided to Ukraine are meant to maul Russian tanks and armored vehicles and represent an extremely significant threat to a Russian invasion. Manned portable air defense weapons will help Ukrainian soldiers eat into Russian air superiority, threatening Russian aircraft and providing a If you are struggling to soldiers eat into Russian air superiority, threatening Russian aircraft and providing a survivable air defense component that's not easily destroyed by Russian forces. Much like in Afghanistan, Russia could face serious threats from US air defense weapons, possibly having a significant impact on air operations in the country. Counter-artillery radar systems will help Ukraine take on Russia's sizable artillery forces, which provide much of the Russian military's killing power. In combat operations against rebel and Russian forces, Ukraine's tank corps had suffered 400 casualties, and almost all of these to Russian-made artillery. Counter-artillery radar will allow Ukrainian artillery to immediately launch counter-battery fire 
destroying slow-moving Russian artillery. Its more important contribution, however, may be in limiting Russian artillery operations, as they'll now have to take into account the possibility of counterfire and thus practice shoot-and-scoot procedures which limit total rate of fire and place non-motorized artillery units in serious risk. However, U.S. assistance has been more hands-on as well. The American military has provided direct intelligence support to Ukraine in the form of detailed satellite imagery and analysis, helping Ukrainian forces pinpoint rebel forces, track their movements, and target them for destruction. The assistance of America's eyes in the sky has had the effect of saving hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers' lives. The United States military has also assisted Ukraine by providing medical supplies and equipment, as well as hosting numerous training exercises in western Ukraine. U.S. active duty, reserve, and National Guard forces have all been deployed to western Ukraine to help train local forces, bringing their combat expertise in Iraq and Afghanistan, and teaching Ukrainian soldiers how to properly employ modern anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons donated by the U.S. While no direct combat assistance has been provided by America to Ukraine, numerous and completely unacknowledged intelligence gathering and recon units have been deployed into the nation's conflict zones. This has allowed the U.S. forces to gather detailed intelligence on Russian weapon systems, as well as collect critical data on Russian electronic warfare operations and capabilities. This intelligence has helped Ukrainian forces directly in preparation for combat ops, but has also allowed the United States to better prepare for its own confrontation with Russia. The CIA has also joined the conflict. Its secretive Special Activities Division has been training Ukrainian forces in guerrilla warfare tactics for years and helping prepare the nation for a possible invasion. The CIA's SAD has been preparing Ukrainian active duty and reserve forces to wage an unconventional war against Russia's superior military, incorporating lessons learned from Vietnam and both the US's and Russia's invasion of Afghanistan. So, what would a Russian invasion of Ukraine look like? And what might happen? Russia's main thrust into Ukraine would come from its shared border, with an intense air campaign lasting two or more days, destroying any Ukrainian air opposition and targeting command and control nodes troop staging areas, supply hubs, and industrial sectors. In a mirror to the U.S.'s own strategy of shock and awe, the intent would be a swift and incomprehensibly violent campaign meant to blind the Ukrainian military, throw it into disarray by disrupting communications, and seriously demoralize it through extensive bombing. Ground-based missiles would supplement air operations, allowing Russian missile units deep inside its own territory to lay waste to Ukrainian targets. The next phase of the attack would come on the heels of the air campaign, with a massive armored thrust into eastern Ukraine. A double-pronged assault would see Russian forces pouring into Ukraine from the northeast border and from inside the separatist-controlled area, which could afford Russia with a staging area for an invasion, albeit such an act would give away its plans to invade long before they were put into effect. Another possibility, though a risky one for Russia, would be a naval assault against Odessa from Crimea itself. Russia's Black Sea naval forces have seen major reinforcements since 2014, and while still low in numbers, Russia's current fleet in the region is capable of amphibious operations. Historically, Russia has difficulty with amphibious ops due to logistical issues, and these same issues would be present today. However, Russia could still amass an amphibious assault force of 3,600 troops backed up by 70 main battle tanks and 153 amphibious armored personnel carriers in a first strike against Odessa. These would be quickly reinforced by further amphibious operations. The move would be risky, but if successful would leave Russia in control of 70% of Ukraine's trade, giving it incredible leverage over the country. Russia could also potentially launch an invasion from Belarus into Ukraine, however to do so it would have to move a significant amount of personnel and equipment into the nation. This would once more tip its hand early and allow Ukraine and the world more time to prepare a response. How would this really play out though? The main Russian assault across the border and from the separatist-controlled areas would be difficult for Ukraine to defend against. 
However, the proliferation of American Javelin anti-tank missiles would take a heavy toll on Russian forces and severely slow their rate of advance. At this point, Ukraine's goal would be to slow the pace of the war as much as possible in hope of an international response and resolution, as it could never defeat the Russian military on its own. Ukrainian forces would be dedicated to stalling the Russian attack and trading blood for time. Even US military aid is focused to this end, hence why America has not provided larger weapon systems it knows would be unlikely to survive an initial Russian assault. Man portable anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons gifted by the US to Ukraine are much more difficult to destroy and allow unconventional forces to take a heavy toll on a conventional force. Ukraine would inevitably be forced into a fighting retreat in the east, with the goal of buying enough time for the world to respond to the crisis. Taking a page from the CIA's playbook for a possible Soviet invasion of the West during a Cold War, some units might even allow themselves to be completely overrun, going to ground and remaining hidden as Russian forces push past them. This secret army doctrine was theorycrafted by the CIA in the 60s and 70s, and it was only until recent years that secret plans to leave entire sleeper armies behind enemy lines were revealed. The intent was simple. Given that certain military forces were unlikely to survive against a vastly superior Soviet force, they'd simply not fight and allow the enemy to push past them. Then, once they were in the enemy's rear area, they would rise up and cause mayhem and destruction behind enemy lines against much weaker rear area security forces. An invasion of Odessa from Crimea is possible as well, although unlikely. Russia is very aware of the limitations of its amphibious fleet in the Black Sea, and would likely choose against such a risky if high-yield operation. Such an operation would face no truly significant naval opposition, but it could face a sizable ground defense force. Given the likely slow advance of Russian forces in eastern Ukraine, reinforcements would have to come either by sea or air. If by sea, Russia's sea lift capabilities would doubtlessly dwindle over time as ships and landing craft are lost in combat operations or equipment breakdowns. A steady flow of reinforcements would inevitably slow to a trickle due to logistical losses. Russia would have to take and hold major port facilities to allow for large numbers of troops and equipment to be offloaded, likely with civilian vessels pressed into military service. It's highly unlikely that Ukraine would allow such facilities to remain uncontested or even operational. Another option would be to reinforce Odessa via airlift operations or airborne paradrops. However, the wide proliferation of American anti-aircraft weapons makes this an extremely risky proposition, and Russian airborne forces, which would already be facing steep losses to those weapons, could be devastated attempting to land so deep in Ukrainian territory. Despite being a possible war-winning strategic victory, the taking of Odessa would have to be done the hard way with a slow but steady advance from the east by Russian ground forces. Instead, Russian Black Sea naval forces would use their significant land attack capabilities to pound Ukrainian forces and military installations, while amphibious assaults near the front could flank Ukrainian frontline units, a much better use for them than a potentially suicidal attack against Odessa. The world's response to Russian aggression would undoubtedly be immediate and very punishing sanctions, but Russia has grown to be very resilient to further economic damage by global sanctions. The nation has already been severely punished by international sanctions, wreaking havoc on its economic and even military sectors, but there's a limit to what further sanctions could really do to the nation. Plus, thanks to its massive energy exports, which European nations rely on to a large degree, Russia has built up a sizable war chest to help it weather sanctions and the cost of combat operations. However, the United States has stated through its diplomats that it's ready to impose even more damaging sanctions on Russia should it invade Ukraine, as well as take unspecified actions that the US has never taken before. What exactly those unspecified actions could be remain a mystery, and could range from direct military intervention to massive cyber warfare operations against Russia. What is certain is that the United States and NATO would immediately supply Ukraine with much more offensive military aid. 
In a very real sense, the future of Ukraine is the future of Europe itself in the 21st century. And given the strategic importance of Ukraine to NATO, it seems increasingly unlikely that a Russian invasion won't eventually be met with a US-led military campaign against Russia. Russia's President Vladimir Putin also seems to know this as he recently threatened that Russia's nuclear arsenal stands ready for combat. No doubt because he understands that unless he can secure swift victory in Ukraine, the Russian military is no match for the US in a longer conflict. Now go check out US vs Russia who would win 2021 military comparison or click this other video instead. Oh, <laughs> 